Good morning, everybody. That's my party trick. Good morning. Good to hear. Good to hear the chatter is loud and powerful. I'm just waiting for the microphone to settle down a bit. Good. Well, good morning. My name's Matthew. I have the privilege of preaching to you this morning. Thank you. Um, if you have a Bible, if you want to grab one, please do so. Uh, we're going to be reading in John chapter 3 together today. The title of the sermon is Like Father, Like Son. And uh, in John chapter 3, we read this from verses 22 onwards. Page 1066 in the Bible. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where some, where, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Enon near Philim, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone's now going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens to him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. This is God's Word. We are pick up after Jesus' interactions with Nicodemus just last week. And here we see John the Baptist and Jesus' ministries splitting geographically. Jesus is baptizing in one location. John the Baptist is baptizing in another. An argument breaks out. John, that man who is with you, he, everyone's now going to him. What's going on? What's going on? And what's interesting here, we see in John's response, he could have responded with pride. He could have got defensive. Well, you know, I'm sure I'm still preaching well. I'm sure I'm still doing it correctly. It's nothing to do with what I'm doing. He could have responded with anger. You know, I knew Jesus was going to do that. Just rip apart my ministry. How could he? He could have responded with upset. You know, totally get it. I'm not as eloquent as I used to be, and you know, I'm losing it a bit. I'm getting a bit old. He could have been bitter. But he doesn't. He does the exact opposite. You see, what John does in this wonderful moment is he makes it. Well, he doesn't connect it to himself at all, and he makes it all about Jesus. In other words. Folks, friends, he remains humble. 
And this attitude of humility brings him complete joy. Would anybody here this morning love to drink with a cup of undiluted, complete joy? If it was on the stage, would you come up? I'm sure everybody would come up. John knew complete joy. And what I think the Scriptures give us this morning is a wonderful resource to share what John shared, to experience what John experienced. And so I'm going to, three points this morning, you'll be very pleased to know, very clear and concise, hopefully. The first one is this, what is pride and how can I spot it, therefore? Secondly, how is John's response a resource of humility? And then finally, we all need to take heart that it's just going to take some time. What is pride and how do I spot it? How is John's response a resource for humility? We've got to take courage that's going to take time. Ready? What is pride and how can I spot it? Whew, tough sermon this morning. C.S. Lewis in his book, Near Christianity, if you've read it, gives some good insights to pride. And he says this, pride, pride is a spiritual cancer that eats up the very possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. Pride is a complete anti-God state of mind which leads to all other vices. It's the one thing that no one thinks they are guilty of themselves but very quick to spot it in others. If you want to know this morning how proud you are on your pride thermometer, so to speak, ask yourself this question. How much do I dislike it when other people snub me? How much do I dislike it when people refuse to take notice of me? How much do I like it when I feel patronized, left out, when others show off in front of me? How do I feel? Because you see, at the heart of pride is a constant competitiveness. You see, pride isn't so much that you are happy that you are wealthy, good-looking, or clever. It's that you are more wealthy, more good-looking, and cleverer than those around you. Because pride takes its pleasure in being better. But where does this stem from? In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and talks about a division in the church because of pride and boasting. And Paul puts it this way. He shows that the root cause of pride, the word he uses is, is the language for an over-inflated ego. An ego that is swollen. An ego that is descended beyond its proper size. And actually, the word invokes that of an organ in the body. Not the most wonderful image, but an organ in the body that is overinflated, pumped full of air. And that's how Paul describes his human ego. And so, by definition, a biblical sense of pride is an overinflated sense of self that is competitive with everybody and everything around it. Now, what's interesting, while you're examining your own heart now and asking yourself questions about your own sense of pride, it's important to note the nuances of pride over different cultures and generations. You see, when you go back through the year, the sense of cultural pride would have been a group of people that had too high a view of themselves, but thought better of themselves than they actually were. But actually, in our culture, it's the opposite. Our sense of pride is that we have too low a view of ourselves and not think of ourselves as we should. According to Champion Health, around one in six adults in our country, or 
example, around 17% of people now suffer with depression in a post-COVID world, gone up from around 10% prior to that. Around 56% of people polled in this wide-ranging poll suggest that they have symptoms of depression in the workplace, and that figure is higher if you're between 16 and 24, arguably when you have less responsibilities. Isn't that interesting? And isn't it interesting that, ironically, in Pride Month in our country, we celebrate individualism, an ability to live our own truth, to answer to oneself, to cut out opposing views, and to surround ourselves in an echo chamber to reinforce our own ideas, our own beliefs, our own wants, so that we can be who we want, when we want, whatever gender we want, because ultimately, pride finds its truth in our own, in ourselves, in the solitary individual. But what John does here is he cuts through cultural nuances of pride because he doesn't respond with too high a view of himself. He doesn't respond with too low a view of himself. You see, he doesn't respond and connect it to himself at all. Do you see this in the world around us, this sense of cultural pride? Do you see it out there? Do you see it in your workplace? Do you see it in the meeting room? Are you having to defend yourself because you think so-and-so is going to say something that's going to, you know, do you see all that? Do you see it in here? You see, the problem with pride is, like an undetected cancer, it goes about the community silently causing devastation. Like carbon monoxide in a home where a family are asleep, the smell often doesn't come until it's too late. Pride. But as I said, God neither responds with too high or too low. He does something completely radical. He does this. He demonstrates the following art, that humility is the art of not thinking less about oneself or thinking more about oneself, but it's about thinking about oneself less. Humility, I'll say again, is not the art of thinking more about yourself or less about yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. John points to Jesus when he's confronted with this conversation. They're all going over there. He could respond with pride, but he responds with humility. The real test of being in God's presence, as John was with Jesus, is that you forget about yourself altogether. Think about the songs we've just sung. Even thinking about now, where's your mind? On self or on him? Now, just to say, you know, preparing for this sermon should come with a warning habit because I have been so aware of how I put all things on myself. You know, interactions, conversations, WhatsApp messages, but folks, the real test of being God's presence is to think about yourself less, not think about yourself at all. So how does John practically respond to them by doing so? Well, it's two things. First of all, in verse 27, to, to respond, to get a resource of humility, I think John shows us two things. This is the second point. The first is this, God's sovereignty. A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. Think about that for a moment. This is well. But please, change a person to I. I can only what is given to me from heaven. That's an offensive statement, particularly for our cultural worldview. 
John believed he was only acting in accordance with God's will over his life. Now, this is a difficult concept for us to attend, but also very difficult for if you're born from 1980s onwards, also millennial bracket. If you're like me, born in the early 80s uh, afterwards, this is going to be a difficult because we are brought up on a parental diet. So you can do anything you put your mind to. You can be whoever you want to be. I'm brought up in a school where everyone started to get winners' medals. We all won. It was fantastic, and I didn't even partake in some of the races. I still got a medal. I wasn't brought up in a worldview that says, Matthew, you can only become a certain thing. So I struggle with this. But what Paul is, what John is saying, how he responds, is he's basically saying, like a mechanic that can only repair a car with the tools that they give him. So a person can only behave and act in accordance with the tools that God has given into life. I remember turning 30. I was absolutely heartbroken because my dream of becoming a professional sportsman was dead, you know. But if you'd have seen me my whole life, there was no natural ability to become a professional sportsman. It would have been no surprise to you, but it became a surprise to me at age 30 because that seems to be the age you tip over the edge, you know. Do you, do I, do we as a church have a proper sense of God's sovereignty right now in our moment in life? Friends, what are you faced with right now? What's going on? Where are you at? What are your finances? How are your relationships? Do you have a proper sense of God's sovereignty in your life with what you're faced with right now? Now, no, we must mention two very quick things here that what I'm not saying by this. What I'm not saying is, one, understanding or having a framework for God's sovereignty means laziness in our heart. You know, we cast the dice, God determines how it falls. We make plans in our hearts, God establishes the steps. This isn't an excuse for apathy, laziness, disconnectedness, and evasiveness. Not at all. A true understanding of God's sovereignty, like two pedals of a bike, means that I must act and press forward. New adventures, new opportunities, new activities, continue to learn, continue to develop. But I do so fully understanding that it's under God's sovereignty, in His will, that the outcome is His. I will do my best, and I'll let God take care of the rest. And it's working out those two things together. Like a skilled farmer, it's a gift to the community who can yield a better crop by learning and developing and bringing technology onto the farm so that the community can develop, but ultimately God brings the rain and the sunshine. So that's the first thing. It doesn't mean apathy. Secondly, it means this. It doesn't mean this, that there are limits based upon human reasoning. In our Western culture, we, we, we deduce reasoning is almost like a semi-god in our culture. But humility teaches there is a limit to what we can understand. A culture of pride struggles with this because what our culture says right now and what you'll experience in the workplace if you're a Christian and you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, they'll say, well, if I cannot understand it, then I cannot accept it. I must first understand it before I accept it. Or in other words, if I don't know the reason for a particular matter, then I cannot trust it. I'll be suspicious of it. Because as ultimate authority as one own life, to be whoever we want to be, to act however we want to act, then by definition, what we're saying is our views have utmost authority. And if I can't understand your views, then I'm going to be skeptical. I'm not going to trust them. 
And this adopted cultural belief makes it hard to say, as John says, that I can only receive what is given. And this creeps into the body of the church. You and I will be experiencing many things, and often we find discontentment, strife, and division because we don't understand it. Because this, this, this creeps into our church life, and if I, I have to understand it to be content with it, I have to understand it to adopt it. Friends, that is elevating human reasoning above God's sovereignty. It's difficult, don't get me wrong. I've had a horrendous year. I've had to open up a new business office. I've had to shut it down and make 15 people redundant. Off the back of three months of calling out people to come from their secure job, to join my business, to pay them well, to only in the next few months make them all redundant. Believe me, that is confusing. That is difficult. I have not had joy this year because in some sense I struggle to submit to God's sovereignty over the situation. Now, don't mishear me. There are learned who've made mistakes and could have done things differently, absolutely. But God could have intervened prior to that. I'm sure he could have. So, I'm with you in some of this. It's un- it's sometimes it's difficult. And that creeps into the belief of the creeps into the culture of the church. What, someone put it this way, he used to fly, this pilot used to fly from one part of America to another. It wasn't a popular route, so he was flying over mountains, so like in a small propeller plane, the plane that fill all the bumps, you know, and you're kind of unsure about it. Uh, and he's flying up, he's so close, he's flying at low altitude, he can see the road going through the mountains. And uh, he used to do this trip a few times, and he says, you know, on one, one moment he could see all these cars backed up behind a massive truck. Chugging up the hill, like behind a tractor in the UK. And uh, he's going, he's looking, and because he can see the road in front of the miles and the road behind, he's saying, Why are they not passing? Because, of course, the person in the car doesn't want to pass over the mountains because what if someone comes on? You know? And another time he was flying back and he goes, Someone's passing and they're going to hit a car, is that the car coming? You know, why are they doing that? You know? And he ends up reflecting, I just have a direct line to people in the car, I could tell them when to pass and when to stop. Folks, when we say, Lord, I'm going to trust your, trust your sovereignty, it's like saying there's someone in the sky who can see the roof ahead. And I don't understand it stuck in my lane, behind whatever obstacles in front of me, but ultimately I'm going to trust him. Do you have that sense of him? That's the first thing. Secondly, he understands his role. John knew, he says, I am not the Christ, but I was sent ahead of him. Folks, do you have the same self-awareness this morning as your reporting role? Romans 12 says, By the grace given me, think of oneself with sober judgment. Now, this sort of question my experience tells me can make people feel very insecure. Very insecure. If there's the most common thing I've heard over the years, Folks, I think we can answer this question on two levels. There's the bigger level and the smaller. The bigger level, like John Stott said, when he reflected on his dying breath when he wrote his last book, he said, I've been wrestling with what is God's purpose for my life my whole life because I think it's this, that he wants me to grow and be transformed more and more into his image and likeness every day. Folks, the first thing, everyone, everyone in this church has a similar or the same purpose. He wants you to be more like Jesus. Day after day after day. 
But there's also a smaller seasonal purpose, I think, that fits into that. And that sometimes is where the confusion can be. But one thing I want us to say is let's, let, let's have peace that if I'm really unsure, I can trust Lord. How do you want me to be more like you through this? But that second seasonal portion, listen, that's why we have a prayer team every week. That's why we do life groups. That's why I want you to come to church and turn up on a Sunday. That's why we want to go for walks midweek. So we can iron that stuff out together. What is God calling you for this season of life? And it's going to be different. I have four young children. My season of life is very different. Maybe you have children age 18 and now they're leaving the home. But that season's going to be different. We've got a family going to Florida. There's a season of life trusting God's will. But under God's great banner for them to become more like Jesus, they can trust that going abroad for this season is God's apportioned delight over them. And we go, we send them with hugs and tears and everything else. But what John says here really interesting is that he says, I am the friend of the bridegroom. Now this imagery, he sparks Old Testament imagery because going back, right back to Exodus, we see in the Old Testament God being the bridegroom and Israel being the bride. Which, by the way, just to say, it's one of the only cultural wins you can have as a church that the men get referred to as women in the, the bridegroom. So you can take that. If ever you said the Bible's in a different gender, don't worry, Ken, we're all brides. Okay, all right. But anyway, side point. But the, the, we are the bride and you have the bridegroom. And what John is saying, he's pointing to Jesus is the bridegroom. In other words, Jesus is God. Who is the bride? The church. Us. We are the bride. And so John is saying, my apportioned role in this is the friend to bring them together. In Old Testament times, the friend of the bridegroom would have been the one that stood outside the bride's door to make sure it was only the bridegroom that went in. It would have been the person that arranged all of the ceremonies leading up to the event. So it would have been a specific role. And John says, that's my role. That was my apportioned role. There's a story of General Cyrus, apparently. It goes like this. A wife was charged with treason and she was condemned to die. She was guilty. Her husband heard about this, and he was broken for her. So he runs into the court of King Cyrus, and he says, take me instead. He lies prostrate on the ground and says, I will go in her place. Take me. Make me guilty ahead of her. King Cyrus looks at the situation, and he says, love like this shouldn't be spoiled in death. Both of you can go free. The husband looks to the wife on the way out and says, Did you see King Cyrus's face when he changed his mind? To which the wife replies, I had no eyes for the king, but only for the man who was willing to die in my place. Jesus this morning as the bridegroom shared with us. John the Baptist in his ministry is trying to show us who Jesus is so that we would show Jesus to him and have eyes for him only. Folks, what is your apportioned role? Who's responding to this morning? Who's going to like you? Who's continuing to work with us and connect in? Because that's the fun and the adventure of working that stuff out together. We're going to get it wrong, yes, but we'll get it wrong together. We're going to get it right, yes, but we'll get it right. Together. But one thing we will 
hopefully have through this, as John experienced, is complete joy. When John sees the bride and the bridegroom come together, it's complete joy. Friends, you know someone, you see someone meet Jesus. Isn't it complete joy? It's just wonderful. Wouldn't, I promise you, we will all, after our picnic, leave this place full of joy if the very experience of this morning is us meeting with Christ. Won't we? Healing, friendship, love, forgiveness. Oh, that's going to stir you up. That is going to stir you up. And it's there on offer for us this morning. Are you gazing into the face of Jesus with your reporting role? The truth is, the problem, the difficulty with humility is this. The harder you search for it and long for it, often, the further away it gets from you. Because to start thinking about being a humble person is to think about self. And to start thinking about self is the very opposite of humility. And so you can get lost in this process. I often think it's like being a family. Often you say, I just want to feel like a family. You start thinking, I want to feel like a family. I, I, you know, you end up needing a sense of family. The only time feeling like a family comes is when you go and do activities together. Book a day out. You know, go for a walk. And the very symptom of that effect is feeling like a family. Well, folks, the very symptom of thinking of others, trusting God's sovereignty, knowing who He is, the very symptom of that is a church will have a humble heart. But let me encourage you this, and my final point in conclusion, that it's just going to take time. Is that an encouragement? I don't know. It's going to take time in an instant society. Maybe it's not an encouragement to you. But it is an encouragement to me, because I realize how messed up I am, and there's hope for the future. Hope it's an encouragement to you. You see, the whole of life is discerning between what is true and what is false. The book of Proverbs calls wisdom an outcome of humility. Becoming wise is a byproduct of becoming humble. Um, I was telling, I was talking with Helen about this on Thursday night. We both read a book together, not together, but we both read a book at different times, uh, called The Humble Root. And there's a wonderful chapter in it about tomatoes, which you're probably thinking, where on earth is he going with this? Tomatoes. I'm talking about humility. But apparently, tomatoes are picked in a, in a supermarket society. Tomatoes are picked off the vine before they're ripened because they need to be able to last the transportation process, be staying in a warehouse, and then put on the shelf before they're sold. So they're picked really early before they're ripened so they can be edible at some point later on. But the problem about tomatoes when they're picked before they're ripened is they're not red. They're green. And apparently studies show that no one likes to buy a green tomato. So they inject it with ethylene to make it appear red. But you and I, when we buy a supermarket tomato that appears red, it's probably green that looks red because it's been injected with chemicals. I, we, have just, we just have enough space now and we've got a little vegetable patch. And then next year, I'm hoping we're going to taste some. But I'm told that you can... Re- actually, no, I've been to one restaurant, the pig in Sutherland. Have you been to the pig in Sutherland? Lovely. You can tell the vegetables there are fresh on the local ground, aren't you? The flavor is fantastic. Apparently, when you bite into a true tomato versus a supermarket tomato, you'll know the difference. Folks, there's no ethylene to being a humble person. There's no ethylene to know what is right and what is wrong. It takes years of ripening, seasoning, getting it wrong, having to repent, apologizing, 
celebrating so that hopefully as you grow and as we grow in this year, we become more dreamers and that is the plan. Just wait, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And scripture roots wisdom in submission to God. And that is one of the most humbling acts anyone can do. When we remember who we are and who God is, we also remember where knowledge comes from. Humility, like John has, says this, I know I'm dependent on him and I understand my limitations. Have, your, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of a servant, sorry, though he was in the form of God, not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Friends, to the degree that you can from Jesus, beyond all reason, emptying himself, making himself humble, the degree that you can continue to say, I must be true, so that you can increase in forgiveness and enlightenment of God, will you be able to the degree say, I need you, and that you will be. Like Augustine says, I first believe in order that I may understand. I first believe in order that I may understand. Our culture says, I need to understand first before I believe. Lord, I don't understand, but I believe. Lord, that you have been grateful that 